Welcome to the Self-Helpful Podcast. I'm Kevin Miller. I hunt for the latest and greatest authors and experts in self-help and ask them the in-depth questions I'm curious about for my own growth. I bring these conversations series to you so we can learn and grow together. In this episode, I'm back with internationally renowned family therapist, Terry Reel, to walk through his personal values, motives, and habits, as I do with every guest. And we're talking in the key areas of life fulfillment, and we'll hear what has driven and does drive him to devote his life and livelihood to helping us have better relationships with ourselves and others, and what he does to design a life that fulfills him. If you listened to the first discussion we had together, you heard some of Terry's traumatic childhood. In this, he discusses relational practices and struggles with his wife and enduring two bouts with cancer, how even into his 50s, he loathed himself. And now what he does to help him hold himself tenderly, as he says, as I titled the show with, and his testimony that today it's really pleasant to live in his skin. For some reason, Terry just delivers his insights in a way that's just incredibly humbling and real and I can relate to. He has such understanding and compassionate counsel, and he's a great storyteller, and you're going to hear some great ones here. His new book, again, that I'm just wholeheartedly endorsing is called Us getting past you and me to build a more loving relationship. You can get it anywhere, of course, and then find him at Terry, T-E-R-R-Y, real.com, where he has courses and classes and incredibly valuable resources to take advantage of and benefit from immediately. If you find value from this self-helpful podcast and specifically this episode, leave a rating and tell people what you heard, what you thought about, what you liked, what you didn't like. And best of all, share something you heard today with somebody else. Talk about it. Let it go deeper. If you get benefit, you'll elevate someone else's day as well as yours. And you can connect with me at kevinmiller.co just about anywhere. So next up, Terry Real talking about his values, his habits, his motives. And I think you're going to get a lot out of it. Terry, I, in reading your books and being, I'm going to call myself a student at this point, I'm, I'm getting there quickly um, and definitely a, a, a fan and so respectful of what you're doing. I'm eager to hear this on the personal side. I mean, I know you start off the book and you talk about your own, you lead into it with your own troubled childhood and your own journey and it makes you so relatable. And so I'm eager to hear some of the, yeah, the values and practices that you have here and also your commentary on where you see us in relationship, your expertise, where you see us go by the wayside, honestly, you know, so let's start off with, with spiritual, which is one that you you hit on so well. I feel like you write in a way that would say, how can you do what you do and talk about relationships without a spiritual aspect? So tell me about that side of your life. Well, look, uh, I've been meditating over 50 years, uh, on and off. And I've been a daily meditator forever. My, my wife and I, uh, start off every morning, knee to knee in, in, in bed, uh, meditating 45 minutes is a beautiful uh, way to begin our day. Uh, spiritual life is very important to me. Um, I write about this uh, in, in the epilogue of the book. You know, psychologists talk about basic trust, uh, which is supposed to develop kids at about two years old. Basic trust 
is the essentially optimistic uh, sort of world energy uh, <clears throat> that uh, things are going to work out. It's going to be okay. You know, I love this. Uh, late in his, very late in his life, near death, <laughs> Albert Einstein was asked by a journalist, professor, uh, at, at this stage of your life, what would you say the most important question is? Uh, and you expect some, you know, physics. He says, uh, the most important question uh, is this, is the universe a friendly place? Wow. Safety again. Yeah. Is that yeah. profound? Yeah. It, 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 it is the life force benevolent or random or malevolent. Basic trust is a fundamental building block of a healthy personality. It's supposed to come at two. That things are going to work out. But as I say in the book, how much basic trust uh, are you supposed to have? Uh, when someone four times your size uh, capriciously and episodically acts like they hate you, yeah, either violently or negligently or both. Uh, I speak about my own journey. All relational life therapists speak about our own journey. Our authority is not our schooling. It's our own relational recovery practice in our lives. I grew up in a dysfunctional family just like you, most of us. I grew up in a dysfunctional society, just like you, all of us. I had to learn how to heal. I had to learn how to have relationships. The skills that I'm downloading to you are the skills my wife, Belinda, and I use every day. Uh, on those days when the adaptive child in either of us gets us and we don't use those skills, uh, we look just as ugly as you do. My clients love hearing that. I'm just a human being like the rest of you. The spiritual piece is this. We therapists are always asking our clients to let go. But you can't let go unless there's something to let go into. You're not going to dive off the board without water in the pool. There must be some sense of the spirit or life force or inspire, whatever the hell you, I don't care what you call it, uh, that is uh, uh, pervasive, that uh, surrounds and supports you, and that is ultimately benevolent. And if you don't have that sense, uh, it's really hard to let go of the delusion of uh, control, which is really mostly driven by entitlement and fear and grandiosity. So moving into humility, I'm not above nature, I'm a part of nature, uh, really expand, uh, it extends to a spiritual practice. The, the, the practice that most speaks to me, and I've done them all, uh, is Taoism, T-A-O. Uh, it's a precursor to Zen. And, um, oh my gosh. Well, you made me do this. Okay. I, I, I have to read uh, one uh, poem, uh, which I closed the book with. So hold on one sec. Here we go. This is from a Taoist master, Lao Tzu, 
written, are you ready? 6,000 years ago. Okay. 6,000 years ago. Okay. Here's the poem. In harmony with the Tao, the spirit, in harmony with the Tao, the sky is clear and spacious. The earth is solid and full. All creatures flourish together, content with the way they are, endlessly repeating themselves, endlessly renewed. When man interferes with the Tao, the sky becomes filthy, the earth becomes depleted, the equilibrium crumbles, creatures become extinct. The master views the parts with compassion because he understands the whole. Wow. 6,000 years ago. Think it's relevant? I think it's relevant. I think it's relevant. It reminds me even of, you know, on a, on a level people know AA and they seem to not be able to really do what they do without some recognition of a greater power, a greater yeah. purpose. Well, and on that, so purpose, and you mentioned this in the first show, you talk about it in your book and where we find, and I've seen this experientially my entire life in the personal development, the self-help business, that where we find in business, even where we find the greatest purpose is our second category here is relationships. And as you brought us to in the first show where I was questioning if safety is really the thing that we want most. And you said, yes, in the maladaptive child uh, aspect, it is. But when you, as a wise adult, what do we want? And you said connectedness. So tell me about the values that you have and see needed in relationships. And I'll just put that in there. Connectedness as well. Or maybe that is it. It's connectedness. Maybe that's the answer. Yeah, that is the value. It's it's a connection At, at every level. Um, connecting and uh, so many men and women and non-binary people in our culture suffer disconnection. You know, trauma disconnects us. That's what it does. Uh, That's what it is. Trauma is always uh, a disruption in the relational field. Hmm. Uh, You can't be in a moment where you're enjoying a, a, a functioning holding environment and be traumatized at the same time. By definition, trauma means that field has been destroyed, uh, ruptured in the moment. So connection, disconnection uh, from our bodies, which breeds so much disease, from our minds. Uh, we just did an exercise in the first part of the show where I ran through getting in touch with your feelings, Uh, disconnection uh, from our wants and needs. So many women uh, uh, traditionally socialized have a hard time asserting their wants. You know, we say neither men nor women have voice in their relationship. Uh, Women uh, are socialized. I mean, feminism has helped, but Traditionally, women have been socialized to think that wanting something is selfish. A good woman has no needs. They serve the needs of others. And men are socialized to think that wanting something is weak. I'm Superman. What, I don't want anything. I'm perfect. Yeah. Uh, so we're both walking around uh, in versions of not being human with each other. And then we wonder why we have so much difficulty 
getting along. So connection to our bodies, connection to our hearts, connection to our feelings, connection to our wants and needs. Um, I make a distinction. I'm glad this has come up. I do this with a lot of guys. I have very high powered, you know, captains of industry, multi-gazillionaire. And I talk with them about the difference between gratification and relational joy. Hmm. Gratification, which our culture runs on, is a short-term hit of pleasure. You know, you make a killing in the stock market, you close the deal, a pretty girl smiles at you, whatever. It's great. Great in its place. I don't, I, I like pleasure. Relational joy is a deeper down pleasure. It's not about doing or having, it's about being. And it's just the pleasure of being there and being connected. Parenting uh, is the easiest place to uh, uh, scan for relational joy. You know, I tell a story if I can. Please. Well, my, my kid now is 32, he's got an MD, PhD. Uh, and he also danced for the L.A. Ballet. He's a spectacular kid. But when, when he was little, he was a terror. And I, I was giving him a little time out in his room. We didn't have locks on the door. So I'm holding the door shut and he's trying to get it open. You know, he's about this big, right? But I'm telling you, man, lightning was coming out of his I mean, clouds. Were, it, was, it was like a horror. It was like poltergeist. The whole house was shaking. Mm -hmm. And while one part of me was like, so mad, I don't want to throw him out the window. Another part of me was like, you mighty little spirit, you. You're going to do just fine in this world. Sometimes our relationships are gratifying. Sometimes they're a royal pain in the neck. But there's a deeper down pleasure that's below those waves. That's steady as a rock. I love being here because I love being here period, end of story. That's relational joy. Now, a lot of the high-powered men I treat have little to no experience of relational joy, and I have to teach it to them. I had a guy, true story, had to be worth 100 million bucks, already brought two companies public and sold them. He was in his early 40s. Beautiful wife, kids, blah, 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 German guy, had no joy in his life. Not a moment of joy. So I explained this to him. And I say, come on. A moment somewhere in your life. You have no experience. He said, no, you know what? Now that you bring it up, there are rare moments when I'm on my hands and knees playing horsey with my kids, hmm. my two little kids. And I lose myself and I feel joy. I go, that's it. That's what you want. And I swear this true story, he, he called me a month later and he said, my life is completely transformed. He said, I live for relational joy now. I play with my kids. I've cut back my work. I sit on the porch and talk to my wife. I never even knew who she was. I never paid attention to her. My whole life is different and I'm experiencing joy for the first time in my life. It reminds me of just a deeper appetite and, and we're, as you know, culturally we're called it the microwave society forever, but I feel like that even with our pleasures, we're, we'll so quickly take that momentary gratification 
and not invest for that deeper appetite, that deeper joy. And until you taste it, it's really hard to sell. Yeah, it's true. But we've all tasted it in moments. Well, taste, good segue into health and wellness. And I I do want some literalness on this, on what you do, honestly, for diet, exercise. What are the things that Terry Real does to uh, stay healthy and able to write the next book? Well, I don't know if I'm going to be writing another book. I may be uh, on the beach hanging out with my family. Fair enough. Fair enough. The next thing, um, well, to do that with, with health and vitality and clarity, what do you do? Uh, I, uh, uh, I'm 72 years old. Uh, I'm going to tell you a straight out, Kevin. Uh, while all of this has been happening to me, uh, while the book became a New York Times bestseller, which it did a couple weeks yes, ago. Yes, congratulations. I saw that. Thank you. Uh, I have also been dealing with not one, but two cancers. Wow. Uh, I had uh, carcinoid. Uh, it's a very slow-growing cancer, very friendly cancer, uh, removed from uh, my lung, and then they discovered liver cancer. Uh, so I've had two back-to-back surgeries, major surgeries, I'm cancer-free wow. and tend to stay that way, but um, I take care and, and I have for a long time. I, um, I exercise, I walk every day, uh, 30 minutes to an hour every day, you, uh, often uphill. Um, I do weight training a couple times a week. Uh, because of the cancer, I'm changing, I'm radically changing my diet. Okay. Uh, no meat, no sugar, no white flour. Uh, I'm going plant-based. Um, but um, uh, the main thing that I do to keep myself physically uh, healthy uh, is uh, I hang out and have a great time with my wife. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, we can't wait to dive into bed and uh, uh, watch this, uh, one of watch some stupid movie or show, and uh, hold each other. Uh, at night, when we go to sleep, uh, we tell each other how much we love each other, and I thank her every night. Uh, and uh, my kid, in fact, somebody's making a documentary about my work and my family. It'll, it'll be coming out in about a year and a half or two years. My kids are incredibly relational. Uh, they come home, flop into bed with us with their big feet, you know, uh, hanging over the... And uh, we can talk until one or two in the morning, the four of us. Uh, so I would say uh, the thing I do most for my physical health uh, is um, drink in uh, the joy and abundance of my uh, relationships and the people who love me, friends as well, colleagues. When I went through my cancer, I felt overwhelmed yeah. uh, with love from friends and colleagues. Um, so glad to hear, of course, the good prognosis and, and sorry to hear that you've been through that. I did not know. That's yeah. uh, significant. That is scary. And yet, as you 
attest to, I'm sure, makes the sweet things in life that much sweeter. It does. It does. Um, when I was going through it, I said to my friend Carol Gilligan, well, we're all mortal, uh, but some of us are a little more mortal than others. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, it's, um, uh, it's brought into uh, dramatic uh, relief just what my values are. Yeah. And I write about this. I call this deathbed consciousness. You're fighting with your partner and the phone rings and God forbid uh, the tumor's malignant. You put down the phone and what just happened to the fight? Dissipated, Who yeah. Who cares? Because you have your head on straight. And uh, yeah, nothing like going through what I just went through to get your head on straight. Okay. Head on straight. And, and that's our next category is just the mind, um, mental health. And even I've been finding myself saying mental state, just as something, do we think about the mental state that we want, that we want to grow? And, you know, so as we talked about in our first time together, I mean, you are, it seems like that's a core of what you're doing with a couple, especially we're looking in front and going, how can I get you in a, the right mental state out of the adaptive child into the wise and mature adult and into the caring spouse and relational posture of a mental state is, I mean, is that fair to say it's at the, it's at the core of your entire work? It is. It's about love. I mean, what do we want? We want love. We want to be loved and we want to feel love. And uh, everything else is everything else. And it starts with your relationship to you. Yeah. As you know from the book, uh, I talk a lot about what healthy self-esteem is and how to hold yourself tenderly in the face of your imperfections. It's a skill that can be developed. I grew up harshly uh, and I held my, I, I was saying, we tend to hold ourselves the way we were held. Hmm. And I held myself harshly into my, into my 50s. I didn't have healthy self-esteem into, until my late 40s, early 50s. I learned to hold myself tenderly even when I screwed up and not be harsh. Hey, listen, those of us who are listening and watching this, uh, I like to say this every podcast. If you get nothing from this podcast, but what I'm about to say, what I'm about to say has the power to transform many of your lives. So take it seriously. Okay. Here it is. Ready? Yep. There is no redeeming value in harshness. Hmm. Nothing good comes from harshness. If it's harsh, it's off. There is nothing that harshness does that loving firmness doesn't do better. So if you're being harsh to someone else, if you're being harsh to yourself, if someone's being harsh to you, change it up. Gentle up. Confront it. Stand up to it in a loving way. You don't meet harshness with harshness. You meet harshness with loving firmness. So at 72, I have a deal with the universe. If it's not kind, I'm not interested. Hmm. And that goes between me and others, and it goes between my ears. So if I start to rake myself over the coals for some imperfection, I will literally say, because that's the adaptive child part of me, 
The adaptive child is like a battery. If you were treated harshly, it stores that and then it discharges it. And it's just a little boy. And I will say to that little Terry, hey, hey, hey listen, buddy, hey, you know, uh, say it like you're on my side and I'll listen. Hmm. But if you say it like you're not on my side, I'm not gonna listen. Hmm. We can, our relationships to relationships in our culture is passive. You get what you get and then you complain about it. We have something to say about what goes on inside our head, what goes on between us and other people. We can change what's happening. That's a revolution. Um, I have to tell you a story. Please. May I? Yes. So I was giving a workshop for therapists, uh, an all-day workshop somewhere, and I was signing books. And one of my handlers said, Terry, Terry, you're going to miss your phone. Oh, my God. And I gather up my whatever. I'm on the plane. Nice glass of Chardonnay. You know, I kick off my shoes. It was a great day. I'm feeling great. And all of a sudden, I feel this wet, cold, ugh, on my, and I look down at my shirt. And there's a, 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 a pool of black, wet liquid on my, I had been signing with a Sharpie uh, and I didn't put the lid on. I put the Sharpie in my, and the whole shirt was with permanent. And it was an expensive, it was like one of my, I'm going on Oprah shirts. It was like a couple hundred bucks. Now I have ADD. So I'm always breaking things and losing things and, and I'm depressive. Uh, So that adaptive child part of me, I wouldn't even have identified it then as that, but that adaptive child starts to go to town. You know, I, I say, and I don't want to talk about it. If you hold a stethoscope up to the psyche of a depressed person, what you'll hear is one part of the person endlessly beating up another part of the person. Mm-hmm. It's violent in there. And that's what happened. You can't believe it. You're such an idiot. You can't, I can't trust you with anything. You ruin this, you ruin that. And on this day, I lean into that little boy and firmly, but not harshly, I say to him that, hey, listen, the same ADD brain that ruined this shirt is the brain that wrote the books that was being photographed. So how about if you do us both a favor and stand down? Hmm. And he did. And what might have been a five-day depression in my 20s was solved in five minutes because my relationship to me is not a passive one. I have something to say about how it goes in here. And I can replace the harsh judgment. Stop it. Stand up to it. The first time you do it, it'll laugh at you. But the 3,000th time you do it, it will pipe down. I can, I can stop that harshness. And then I can summon compassion and care. And I can give it to myself. Yeah. And I learned how to do that in my 50s. I used to loathe myself. I used to really hate myself. And I got to tell you, for the last 20 years... Uh, it's really pleasant in my skin. And that's earned. But no one gave that to me. I had to learn how to do that. And so can you. And everybody listening to this. And everybody reading the book. That line, it's really pleasant in my skin. Who wouldn't want that feeling? 
Well, you, you have to want that feeling. It. You have to work for it. Well, work is our next category. Okay. And I'm curious with this, as you've talked about that you do work with a lot of um, very successful individuals in the workplace. And as you said a moment ago, and so many, you spoke to men specifically who have reached untold levels of success. And yet like your story, the guy had no relational joy, which at the end of the day, it's the, the there's the deathbed desire. It's, there's nothing we want more, nothing we regret more than not having that. And so uh, with that said, your own work, career, business, values in that light uh for me or for our people generally i mean this sounds uh, grandiose i guess but um in terms of my work life i see myself as a vessel Hmm. and and, uh you know, I talked a lot uh, in the first hour about trading a paradigm of dominance and control with one of cooperation and collaboration. Right. Uh, and that's spiritual, it's uh, planetary, it's social, it's racial. Um, my metaphor for the new paradigm is art. It's artful. Okay. And I want people to be artful in their relationships. So it goes like this. You are a pianist. You practice and practice and practice and practice and practice. You master your craft. Saturday night rolls around and you're at the concert. And inspiration passes through you. And it's magic. You don't own that inspiration. If you act like you it's yours that's egotism and you're you're going to crash what you do own is the craft you work like a dog to master that craft you're proud of your part of it and you're humble in the face of what comes through you both at the same time hmm. uh that's my metaphor for uh for work um I'll tell you a story. I like to tell a story. Uh, you know from his beautiful introduction to the book that I've worked with Bruce Springsteen. I've had the privilege of working with Bruce and Patty. And I love listening to Bruce talk about his art. I could listen to him for hours, talk about his art. And one of his 8 million sayings that I, I, I've just repeated over and over again is this one. He said to me one day, and I won't do the voice, but so, you know, when you're up on that stage, there's two things. You don't get any of them, you're done. If you get one without the other, you're done. But if you get both at the same time, literally the same instant, it's magic. They go, okay, what are the two things? Because the first thing is this. This moment, this stage, this chord is the most important moment in the history of the universe. Like, uh, okay, what's the second thing? It's just rock and roll. (laughs) (laughs) So you're a servant to what passes through you. 
and you're proud of your craft. I'm a very good craftsman. Uh, and you bow to uh, the inspiration uh, when you're lucky enough to have it come. And it's both. Uh, it's pride in your part of it and humility in what passes through you. Yeah, you bring to mind just back to spirituality of is it all and control. Um and, yeah, well, back to Taoism, here's a line. Yeah. Uh, the master steps out of the way and lets the Tao speak for itself. Huh. And that's art. It's art. Okay, another story. Please. I like to tell stories. So this is my favorite story for RLT therapy. This is what I teach my students. It's a Taoist story. So as these stories go, you got a young kid and he wants to be enlightened. And he, the, the great master uh, of his generation happens to be the king's cook. He's the great Taoist master of the land. So the kid goes up to mountains and fights tigers and blah, blah, blah. And he, he gets himself to uh, the capital and he, and he goes to, the, to this great master. And he says, master, teach me about the Tao. And the master looks at the kid and goes, all right, grab a knife, let's cook. And as these stories go, a year goes by. And now the kid's getting frustrated. And one afternoon, he throws down his cooking gear and he turns to the master and goes, I came here a year ago to learn about the Tao. And for a year, all we've done is cook. When am I going to learn about the Tao? The master looks at him and says, Stupid boy. He says, let me ask you a question. Remember, this is about therapy and work. Let me ask you a question. How many times do you sharpen your knife? He goes, I don't know, four or five times a day. Yeah. How many times have you watched me sharpen my knife? The kid goes, I've never seen you sharpen it. Because that's right. Because your knife cuts things. My knife finds the space between them. Huh. That's work. Be in the flow. Wow. We had Stephen Kotler on the show not long ago. He has the Flow Institute. And it's amazing since then how often the word comes up in the shows authentically like this. Um, thank you for that. And I would take that right into the next category of money, finances, wealth, how we view that, how that relates to our, I'd almost ask the question relates to our relational joy or lack thereof, the pursuit of, t tell me. Well, look, first of all, uh, uh, I'm not so what my wife calls spiritual Wawa. She's from California. Uh, that uh, I'm going to say, well, we're all abundant. Look, there are real social constraints on people, marginalized people, yeah. uh, people of color. Uh, and not having money grinds you down. I grew up in poverty. Uh, and uh, it's, it's terrible when, when your life uh, is um, oppressed 
uh, and, and you don't have a reasonable amount of resources. Um, you know, not to whatever, but I have a friend who's Danish and uh, Denmark, uh, uh, Finland, uh, Norway are the happiest people on the planet. And they're, they're taken care of, cradle to grave. Uh, you can work in a little you know, bookstore uh, and make not much money, but you'll have a comfortable place to live and medical care and you'll be all right. So basic human, it goes back to safety. Yeah. Uh, basic human needs need to be met and people need access to uh, uh, a fundamental uh, health, financial health. On the other extreme, healthy self-esteem comes from the inside out. I have worth because I'm here, I'm a human being, and uh, my worth cannot be added to, it cannot be subtracted from, it's an existential, spiritual fact. I'm no better or worse than anybody else. Our culture runs on unhealthy self-esteem, outside in self-esteem. Yeah. Performance-based esteem, big for men, I have worth because of what I can do. Uh, sounds like you had some of that in your childhood. Uh, other based esteem, big for women, I have worth because you think I do. Hmm. Uh, and attribute-based esteem, I have worth because of what I have. The whole advertising business is built on attribute-based. Buy this car and right. be a person of distinction. I have worth because I'm here and I'm breathing. And if you, like so many of us, tie your sense of worth and well-being to your bank account or your accomplishments or your success or, or, or uh, you're in for a rocky ride. Oh. It has nothing to do with any of that. So on the one hand, uh, if you're socially barred from a reasonable, healthy, comfortable existence, you're impoverished, uh, we need to do something about that collectively and not blame the person on the bottom end of the spectrum for that. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, uh, this notion uh, that what I have makes me a better person is uh, poison. Uh, and it will rob us of our happiness. Yeah. Happiness. What does Terry Real do for fun? In addition to jumping in bed with his wife in the evening and watching a good flick and, and snuggling and whatnot, but what do you do for uh, just fun, just play that somewhat non-productive? I think you actually write about this in the book. You don't say non-productive. There's another word that you use, but, uh, but it was something like that, but to play, to fun. Yeah, it's about being. It's not about doing. Okay. Uh, after you know a, lot of, a long career and a lot of work, uh, my wife and I have a beautiful little house in, on the island of Martha's Vineyard uh, off the Cape in Massachusetts. Uh, man, give me a long walk on the beach with my feet in the water and uh, my wife and maybe even uh, a friend alongside of me. I could go for miles, mm. just miles. Uh, 
Uh, I love that beach. I love Martha Vineyard. I love to go biking, kayaking, uh, before my surgeries, tennis. Uh, but, uh, you know, we have a big screened in porch in, in that house. And uh, what we love to do is get a whole bunch of people together. And uh, there may be some recreational substances of some kind or another, uh, uh, some drinking involved. And everybody cooks, mm. we put on music, and everybody dances, including kids. Uh, and we all cook together, we make a fabulous meal. We sit down on that screen and porch, light some candles, and talk into the wee hours of the morning. Uh, man, a New England hot summer's night uh, on that screened in porch with good food, good wine, and a bunch of friends uh, can't be beat. I, I, would, I would be there. I would be there. Too. You should there, come. I should come. You're invited. That's, uh, I don't think it gets much better than that uh, for me as well either. As a night like that with people you love and care about. Thank you. Thank you for your time, for your heart, for your candor, um, and, uh, and for the guidance you shared too here. I'm incredibly grateful and incredibly honored, Terry. Thank you so much. Oh, my gosh. Well, I, I'm taking it in. Uh, and... Um... Uh, you are really a light. Uh, you shine. And you've got a big heart and you're open and you're appreciative uh, and you're discriminating and you're smart. Uh, and uh, there's a reason why so many people are drawn to you and listen to you. I think you're doing really great work on this planet. And I, uh, I want to appreciate you and the work you're doing. Keep it up. Terry, thank you. Thank you. Blessings to you. It's a pleasure. Okay, friends. Again, you can find Terry Reel's book, Us, Getting Past You and Me to Build a More Loving Relationship. You can get it anywhere and find him at terryreel.com where he has courses and classes and just a lot of resources you can take advantage of and benefit from right now. Thank you as always for choosing to listen to this self-helpful podcast. Again, leave a review, tell somebody what you got out of this episode. And the best thing you can do is tell somebody in your real life, face to face or over the phone or chat about it, even text what you learned and what you thought and what you're thinking. I sincerely hope I've helped you help yourself. 